Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. This podcast is sponsored by Llama Naturals. I learned about Llama Naturals a few months ago, and I honestly wish someone had told me about them sooner. I always recommend that people get their vitamins from whole food sources, not synthetics. But I could never find a good option for my kids, until I found Llama Naturals. They have a full line of delicious gummies that are made with real fruit, no added sugar or sweeteners, plus vitamins from whole foods. They are USDA organic, vegan, gluten-free, and allergen-free. Plus, they are seriously delicious. You can save 20% off your first order by going to llamanaturals.com and using the coupon code JUST. J-U-S-T. My whole family loves them, but if you have a picky eater, they offer a money-back guarantee. Seriously, you should at least go to their site and compare their label against any other gummy brand out there. They are the best I've found. Again, it's llamanaturals.com. Lauren Johnson is a family nurse practitioner with a holistic approach and is a mom of multiple kids. Several years ago, while trying to battle illness with medication, Lauren woke up to the failures of conventional medicine. Since then, she has been on a mission to educate and empower others with the things that she wishes she would have known then. Lauren educates on her Instagram platform at Natural Nurse Mama, her podcast and blog. Welcome everybody to the show today. I am really honored to have our guest today. She is Natural Nurse Mama on Instagram, and I have followed her for quite a while, love what she teaches. So I said to my assistant, you have got to reach out to her and see if she'll be on my podcast. I want to just ask her so many things. So thank you for accepting and thank you for being here on the show today. Oh, of course. I'm so excited to be here. So will you tell my listeners first just a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you became interested in holistic medicine? Yeah, so I, I've been a nurse for about 12 years, maybe 13 years at this point, and I was very conventional. Um, I didn't question much, didn't have a whole lot of health problems, and after the birth of my second child, I was already an NP at this point. I had been a nurse practitioner for about three or four years at this point, and I, my health hit rock bottom. Um, I was very depleted. I had a lot of acid reflux and allergies and daily headaches. And I was being bounced from specialist to specialist and was told to take more and more medicines. I think I was, I was 31 at the time. And I think I was taking like seven medications and I was just being told to take more. i had had the, I did the, all the things they told me to do. Um, I was a good patient in that regard. I did the things and it just wasn't helping. And I was still pretty miserable. I had daily symptoms with both, even with a lot of medication. And so that's when I started like just researching. And so like I was working in urgent care. Um, this is not something that you even question in urgent care, like here's your antibiotic. Um, and so I, I really just kind of dug in because I knew I needed to figure out my health. And um, that's when I started looking at natural remedies or different things. And when I figured things out for myself and I started feeling better, I got kind of angry because I was like, why didn't I learn this? I have a master's degree. Like, why didn't I learn about this stuff? Um, this, there's so many things that you can do besides what I was doing. And so that really kind of was my Instagram page was born out of that time. Thankfully, I'm off all of those medications. I've been off for a few years now and I'm feeling so much better. And I, I that's what I want. I focus on is 
educating and helping other parents and mothers and anybody know what I didn't know um, and what I would have liked to have known. And what is it that you didn't know? Just that food or lifestyle factors played a huge part in your health? I would say it's that it all matters and that the body is connected. So the way what you learn in school is in, in what how it is in conventional medicine and practice, the body is they think it's all disconnected. If somebody is having a headache and they go to a GI doctor, they will say that's not my area of expertise. You need to go see your neurologist. And so that the body is all connected. Everything has, there's a reason for something that that's all connected. And so to always ask why, always ask why, why do I need this? Always ask, why is my body just telling me this? Why is my body, why do I have a headache? Always ask why, that the body is connected and there is a reason for everything. And then yes, to think beyond what you are told as the only solution. The only option is birth control. The only option is Tylenol. No, but think beyond that because there are lots of options for lots of things. I so agree with all of that. And I love that you speak out about that on Instagram. But today I want to actually ask you about some maybe confusing topics or topics that are becoming trendy on social media. And then I get asked a lot about these topics um, in DMs, things like that. So I thought, you know what, let's bring you on and have you answer some of these questions. So why don't we start with the topic of raw dairy? So let's first talk about the basics. Like what is raw dairy and why are some people fearful about raw dairy? Okay, so people are fearful because of what the FDA says. Basically that um, you will die or have this risk of foodborne illness if you consume raw dairy that it's not safe to consume. We look at the actual incidences of foodborne illness and there's actually a lot more from other things than raw dairy. And and in the years like I think there's I mean eggs have caused pasture uh, pasteurized eggs cantaloupe there's I mean there I have a study from 1966 that through now that shows how many things that we have had foodborne illness reactions to and deaths to, but raw dairy has had zero. Um, this was since the sixties. They really started this movement. What happened was in the 1800s, cows were not being taken care of well. Um, the, they were being raised in areas that were just sloppy. There was no sanitation. Um, there was a lot of horse manure on the ground. And so because of that, there was instances of some issues with raw milk because of the way cows were being taken care of. They were also being given like chalk to make their milk look white when it wasn't white. Like there were some very not good things in the 1800s that were going on. But you see that the rates of, of infectious diseases actually went down before they started mandating pasteurization. And actually right around that time, they started chlorinating the water, which I don't agree with. And I don't, I don't like because there are, there are disinfection byproducts and there are issues with that. But there was there were issues with the water that was causing contamination that most likely was the cause of some of those illnesses as well. And so they they did the pasteurization and the chlorination of water at the same time. And they said, oh, that that fixed everything. We don't have any issues anymore. And they blamed it on raw milk. Uh, when in reality, the sanitation was getting better, things were improving, the, the, the situation with the cows and how they were raised was improving, you know, they're going back out to the pasture instead of trying to raise a cow near a city, um, and things like that. And that actually improved all of these illnesses that, that they were seeing related to it. So interesting, that background. 
So raw dairy actually has a lot of health benefits, correct? Yes. I like to think of food and milk, anything, the way it was made. I like to think of like eating food the way it was made, the way it was intended to be consumed. And I, I have to think that it's been, we've been, we've drank raw milk for many, 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 many years. Um, it's only been in the past, what, a hundred years or so um, that they have pasteurized milk. And so it doesn't even make sense that everything got better when we've been drinking like this for, for a long time. Um, so when you pasteurize something, it, it decreases the vitamins, the nutrients, the, it denatures the proteins, it changes the structure of it. And it makes it very inflammatory. Um, I see this in practice, I'll have a patient that will, um, you know, will have lots of ear infections, and you get them and you get them off of conventional dairy, and they clear up. Um, and it's not the only solution to ear infections, there are like chiropractor, and there are other things that are helpful. But it is something to think about. Constipation is another one. I'll get a patient off of conventional dairy and it will clear up. Sometimes I will tell them to go off all dairy for six weeks and then add it back in after six weeks and then see how they do. Um, a lot of times we add, add raw dairy back in. If they add raw dairy back in and it's better, it's because the body is able to digest it. You need those enzymes that are in the dairy, the things that are put there on purpose for a reason um, to be able to digest it well. So the raw dairy has the enzymes in it. It also has probiotics in it that mm -hmm. make things more digestible. But when we pasteurize it, we lose a lot of that, correct? Yes, yes. We lose a lot of nutrients that are naturally in. So for instance, we lose, uh, there is vitamin D in raw dairy and we lose it with pasteurization. So then they add it back in and they add, you know, you see the A and D added to milk. That's it, add it back in, but it's not everything that you need to be able to use that vitamin D and that vitamin A. And so I actually don't drink vitamin A or D added to milk in general because it has been adulterated um, and things have been so denatured that it's not as helpful anyways. Another thing that you'll find with milk in stores, 80% of the organic milk sold in the U.S. is ultra high temp pasteurized which means it's heated to 280 degrees Fahrenheit for at least two seconds and it extends the shelf life. It, it really denatures it even further. And so we're just taking it so far away from what it was intended to be that it's just so inflammatory for our bodies. That is definitely a first step that I, that I make when I'm looking at somebody that has a lot of, if they're sick a lot, if they have a lot of ear infections, if they're constipated, um, things like that, because pasteurized dairy does have a lot of inflammatory issues. So are there any health benefits to pasteurized dairy? It depends on who you ask. I would say probably very little. I mean, I just mentioned the denatured proteins and the vitamin D is gone, so they have to add it back in, but it's like synthetic vitamin D and it's not the good stuff, the natural stuff, the way it was made. And so in my opinion, there probably isn't much as a benefit. Now, I don't want to make everyone fearful to consume it. If you want to go out to have pizza, do I think that that's going to be harmful for you as long as you talk, you don't have like an allergy to it? Sure. I think, you know, my, my, my children have pizza here and there that has regular cheese on it. Um, but is it necessarily a good thing for daily consumption and especially for drinking milk? No, I would recommend to try raw milk as long as it is quality sourced. Um, it is very safe. Um, and really, there is a lot of information out there. If you want to look on www.realmilk.com, um, there is a lot of information out there. You can see the studies on it. Weston A. Price Foundation has a lot of information on their website about raw milk as well. 
Okay, so I've heard on social media like, oh, raw milk is okay for adults, but not kids. That is false, right? It is good for either. Yes, yes. And actually, like, I mean, that's one of the things that there's been studies. um, This was a long time ago because they won't do studies on children that like this anymore. Um, But there have been studies that looked at infants and children and compared pasteurized milk intake and raw milk intake. And the ones that had raw milk intake actually did much better. They grew, they grew faster. I mean, it's because they had those bioavailable nutrients to really be able to absorb and use in their body. Um, So there is a lot there, but I would say that I would be personally okay with children, my children drinking raw milk, my children do drink raw milk. It is different for every child and um, every family. So you have to think about sourcing, ask the farmer, like, what, you know, how do you treat the the cows? Do they, are they, do they have room to roam on the pasture? Are do you use any pesticides um, to spray on the ground? Things like that to really make sure um, you are getting quality sourcing. That realmilk.com does have a locator that has some verified sources of uh, raw milk um, for local people if it's not sold in your state. Because some states, like my state, I can't buy it at the store. Um, And so I have to either meet the farmer or I order it from um, a a raw dairy farm that ships nationwide. I'm so glad you just said that because that was going to be my next question about where to find it. Because here in Utah, I can get it at stores. But I know other states cannot. We have people from like Nevada that will drive to Utah to grab it, you know. So I'm glad that there's a resource for people to go look where to find it in their states. So thank you so much. Yes. Okay, now I'm going to move to the next topic. On social media, there's a lot about Tylenol. Good, bad. So let's talk about it. So many turn to Tylenol when their children are sick. Let's start at the basics. What is Tylenol and what does it do to the body? It is an antipyretic. It lowers the the fever and it helps with pain. Um, and so it is something that's been around for a long time. It's given for different things, but it's processed in the liver um, and it's very hard on the liver. And I remember learning about this when I was a nurse and working in a pediatric ICU and I had a child who needed a liver transplant due to Tylenol. And I was like, wow. wait, what? Like, wait, like, and, and the, at the time, they were selling Tylenol in different concentrations on store shelves and, and parents would give the infant super concentrated Tylenol to their child um, and it would overdose them um, and they would get confused on the dosing. And so they have since changed that where it is all the same dosing. So the overdosing isn't happening as much, but even at standard dosing, there are increased risks of asthma and allergies and eczema with Tylenol. And the reason for it is because Tylenol has these toxic byproducts, um, NAPQI, N-A-P-Q-I, that will build up, it is actually toxic to liver cells. Um, And that depletes the glutathione, which is our body's master antioxidant. And so if we don't have that antioxidant, like that's why we see an increase in asthma because it actually depletes the respiratory glutathione levels in your respiratory tract. And it, it can increase the rate of asthma by a lot, even just like once or twice a year dosing. Yeah. So for those that are listening, glutathione is the, like she said, the master antioxidant, but it's the antioxidant that helps the liver detox. So Mm -hmm. if Tylenol is depleting that glutathione, then we've got even more issues for the liver. Right. That's when you see more of the liver cells actually being damaged and harmed by it because there's not any glutathione to negate the effects of it. Okay. So what alternatives do you recommend for Tylenol? 
So it depends on the use. So with fever, for example, I don't actually recommend lowering fever um, right away unless the baby. So if they have an infant that is three months or younger, um, if they have a fever, I actually just recommend medical evaluation um, because there is a risk for sepsis at that young age. Um, whether that is with a natural provider or whatever type of provider I am okay with, I just want a, an evaluation done at that age. But after that age, um, the body really is doing what it's meant to do. You know, we used to have heliotherapy clinics that in the, I think it was in the 1940s, where the sun was actually healing to these children and adults. Um, the sun has so many benefits. Heat actually can kill the pathogen. Um, and so that's why the body is heating up. The body is heating up because it wants to kill whatever pathogen, whether it's a, a bacteria or another pathogen. Viruses can cause really high fever. Um, and so, and that's something that you're not like, it, you can't take an antibiotic for a, a virus. Uh, and so there's nothing you can do there, but it's like, well, why is the fever so high? The body needs to, to do what it needs to do to be able to, to knock that down. And so I let it ride around 104. Um, I will say maybe bring it down a little bit. And that's mostly because of dehydration. So that's the issue with children as they get so dehydrated. Um, and so you really want to make sure they're, they're staying hydrated with water or electrolytes. Coconut water is a great one to give because it can have those natural electrolytes. And you really want to just make sure they're staying hydrated. And so if you bring the fever down a little bit with like a warm Epsom salt bath, the wet sock method, you can do, um, you can do some diluted peppermint on the bottom of the feet. That can be helpful to bring down the fever naturally and see if the child will walk around and be playful or will drink some. And then if they're doing well, then I tend to say, let the fever ride as long as they're doing well and responding to you. It's so interesting to me because for the past few years, I've known this about fevers. And so when my kids do have fevers, I let them ride it out. But when I had, so I have a 22 year old. When he was young, the pediatricians would always say, oh, keep the fevers down, keep the fevers down. And so you would never want them off of like ibuprofen or Tylenol because you wanted to keep the fevers down. So I'm glad that people are educating about this now. I do think more doctors are starting to be okay with that, um, more conventional doctors. So you'll hear them say that, but they still have this instinct to, to bring it down or to give medicine um, when it's not necessarily needed and you just let the body do what it needs to do. So do you ever think there's a time that it's necessary for Tylenol? I still prefer other alternatives. And so even if, I, if I'm looking at ways to bring fever down or things to help, like I'll use a liquid turmeric tincture or I'll use homeopathy um, and I'll bring the fever down naturally in ways that will work with the body. And I typically don't need it. If we're talking about a situation for Tylenol, like after surgery for pain, um, I would prefer something like ibuprofen, like a one-time dose, as long as they're well hydrated. Um, I still think I would go with the, you know, like a turmeric, or I would go with a homeopathic remedy um, or topical things first. But I mean, a one-time dose of ibuprofen is not going to have the same, um, same effects as Tylenol. So why do you think Tylenol is considered safe if we know it can cause all of these issues in the liver? Well, you know, that it's a, it's a hard question to answer because I believe that there is some nefarious things at play here. And I think, you know, there are pharmaceutical companies that are funding the American Academy of Pediatrics that are funding the AMA. And that is really good. It's like, why would they want to fund a study that shows the other effects or even want to to reverse what they had said in the past and say that it wasn't true. That's the issue with a lot of these medicines. I mean, there's been many recalls of medicines over the years and they don't really want to 
to come back out and say they were wrong because then that makes them look bad um, and that loses the people lose trust. And so I do think that there is some issue with that. Um, I don't know if I, we will ever see Tylenol be declared as unsafe. Um, I, I, I really wish, I really hope that we do, but it is something that they don't, even though it's in the studies, like it's on PubMed, if they get on PubMed and they look up Tylenol and glutathione, it will be there. Um, but what what conventional provider has necessarily the time or the desire to go search on PubMed? That's part of the issue is that it like they don't have the time. They're working long hours. They're exhausted when they get home. They're trying to take care of their families or, or whatever. And it's it's hard to, to get that motivation to still do more research um, and to figure out better ways to care for their patients at that point. Yeah, that's why parents, anyone really needs to just be empowered to learn this education and know the basics. So for those listening, let's just quickly tell them. So the glutathione is what helps the liver detox. And people might be listening going, well, why do I care if the liver detoxes? Or why do I care about, you know, the liver? And just tell the listeners a little bit about what the liver does and why it's so important to have a well-functioning liver. So when the liver is congested, um, and so this happens because of the chemicals that we are exposed to. So, and you talk a lot about this on your page where there's so many chemicals we're exposed to. And these are chemicals that are pretty new in their history. So maybe the last 70 years, we've seen a big increase of thousands of chemicals. And we, we look at it and they say like the dose is the poison, um, but that's really not true. The studies all look at one chemical by itself in isolation. Really, we need to be looking at each chemical together combined, because that's really where what we're being exposed to on a daily basis. And so we think about all these chemical exposures, and that really congests the liver, then we add on a little bit of Tylenol, and we add on a little bit of this, the liver is our is our clearing house, it's what really helps the it, you need it, you need bile flow through it to really help th get things moving. Constipation oftentimes can be resulted to liver congestion, allergies to liver congestion. And so the liver is regenerative, it will regenerate, but we have to kind of stop the, the onslaught of chemicals because at the, if we don't stop, it will never fix itself. We have to slow things down. Yeah, exactly. So the liver just gets sluggish is what I say to mm -hmm. people. It's sluggish because of all the chemicals and toxins. And I do say the liver is miraculous. It is amazing what it will do. It's an amazing detoxer. It will do its best if we can help it out. We've got to do our part as well. And so, um, like you've said, Tylenol depletes that glutathione, which the liver needs the glutathione to do its best job. Yeah. And there are ways to naturally increase glutathione. There are foods, there are, you know, like MSM, there's um, like if a child has, an has anesthesia, has surgery, something like an MSM lotion can be helpful to help increase the, that glutathione. But at the same time, it's like, we still need to look at the root cause of why our glutathione is so depleted. And part of that is Tylenol and other chemicals that are just congesting the liver. So if we can support the liver, we can really get a whole lot done. You know, I see adults too. And even in adults, hormone issues, a lot of that comes down to liver congestion. Um, out, like I said, allergies, if we can really get after that, we can improve a lot of those things. Yeah. I'm so glad you said all of that. Okay. I'm going to move on to the next topic. This one I've been seeing a lot on social media as well. And I want to talk about Miralax and constipation because I know a lot of doctors that just say, oh, your child's uh, dealing with constipation. Oh yeah. Take some Miralax. And I had a follower the other day tell me that her child has been on Miralax for 12 years. 
I was like, oh, I need to help you out. So I did. I did educated her on a few things. But let's talk about this. So why do doctors just turn people to Miralax? It does help constipation, right? Yes, um, it does. <laughs> but it also um, causes bloating and it can cause diarrhea and nausea. Um, and it the toxic byproducts, so it's PEG-3350. And the toxic byproducts of these are ethylene glycol and diethylene glycol, which are both found in antifreeze. Um, mm. And so that is part of why you see some of the toxic effects of Miralax. Um, a lot of the toxic effects of Miralax, you see them more in children. Um, and so in adults, you might see some nausea, you might see some bloating, it kind of works well, but it, then it stops working eventually. So then they have to increase the dose or they'll do a clean out where they do a whole lot of Miralax in one day. And it, it's still like, it's still kind of this, like they're chasing their tail. It's not really working that well, but it's, it's doing, it's better than some of the other laxatives, like the stimulant laxatives that you might've heard, like you might see um, that you get, you develop a tolerance to those. And so those really aren't great long-term, whereas Miralax is like the first one that came around that they said, oh, this can be fine long-term. It's not going to hurt you. But in reality, the toxic byproducts of it, and then the side effects of it really are not a good thing. For children, it can cause tics, it can cause aggression and anger. Um, it can cause these neuropsychiatric effects that parents won't even recognize because they just think, oh, their child is, you know, having a bad day or or whatever. And they don't even recognize it until they're told it's possible. And so you you feel like I did a Miralax post and I felt awful in the comments. I would see these pe these moms that are like, I had no idea, or I I, I had no idea until I stopped the Miralax and it resolved. Um, and it's amazing what you can do if you actually know, oh, and connect the dots. Oh, this was caused by this. Um, and so, yes, Miralax does help technically with constipation by attracting water. And it does help like improve the symptom of constipation. But is it really getting at the root cause? And what are the side effects of long term usage? Well, and I should have backed up and asked you this first, because let's talk about constipation. I have so many followers who tell me that their kids are constipated. So yeah. What is causing all of this constipation? Man, it's so common. Um, it's so common. And they're like, I'll have people say, oh, I just go once a week or I just go once every few days. And it's like, that is how your body is getting rid of waste. It, especially when you think about hormones, but when we think about anything else, we're, that's how your body is getting rid of waste. If you're not going daily, that's a sign that your body is saying, I am struggling. So there's a lot of different reasons for constipation. It's definitely not just one thing. So some things can be food intolerances. So like I was saying earlier with the conventional dairy, um, gluten is another one. And I know you've talked about this a lot with glyphosate and wheat, um, but the wheat is definitely an issue in this country more so than in other countries. And so that can be a common cause of constipation not enough fat in the diet. So we've like, we've encouraged this diet that is just void of um, animal protein and fat, but really we need that fat to keep things moving. Um, and we need that. And so that is something that um, I always incorporate when I have a child with constipation or an adult dehydration. Uh, we're running around so fast. We're not drinking our water, especially if we are drinking filtered water, you really want to make sure you're replacing minerals. Because those minerals are super important for constipation too, and for any other things as well. Other things like exposure to antibiotics and pesticides can definitely impact um, the gut and the microbiome, not making enough stomach acid. Okay, so when we are stressed, when a child is stressed, or when an adult is stressed, 
we don't make the stomach acid that we need to be able to digest the food properly. And so that makes it much harder for the body to get to exit the body. And it slows everything down. Other things like vagal nerve dysfunction and emotional stress, that if I have a person that I really can't get through, like what's like what's actually causing the constipation, we've done all the other things. I'll we'll look at emotions a lot of times and it, and it has a really big impact on the ability to actually release. Um, so I, it's never just one thing, but like I was saying earlier, liver congestion is another factor. And so if you can get the, in, increase the bile flow, you really can improve constipation in that regard as well. So it's not just going after one thing. It's really saying, okay, let's change your diet here. Let's add this here. Um, let's do some liver support. I like to do castor oil packs. I think that's helpful for kids and adults to really go after constipation in multiple ways. And it really usually works really well. Yeah. I always say that constipation is your body screaming for help, like saying, Hey, something is off. And so if we just use Miralax, it's like a bandaid to the right. constipation because we're not addressing the root cause because it could be as easy as it's dehydration causing it. And 75% of Americans are dehydrated, which is crazy to me. Um, another thing you didn't talk about is it could easily be fiber. These, a lot of kids yeah. don't get enough fruits and vegetables these days. And yeah. sometimes it's just that we need to increase that. So definitely look for the root cause of constipation if you or your children are dealing with it. And what would you consider constipation? Like after they haven't gone for one day, two days, three days, is there a, a number? I like to see them having, whether you are a baby, an, uh, a toddler, an older child, or an adult, I like to see bowel movements every single day. Um, that, is, that means the body is able to release what it needs to release, and it is working efficiently. I wouldn't mind to see them twice a day. That is actually a much better thing. Um, but a lot of times I am happy if I can at least get them going once a day. I have to just say this. Yesterday at the gym, we were talking about this, and I was like, no, you should go twice a day. And girls were dying. They were like, you go twice a day. I no, that's crazy. Like they thought it was really weird. And I'm like, no, two is the healthy amount yeah. or even three for some people. Yeah. If you, so if you look back, there's actually records of the stool sizes of, um, people from a long time ago, they used to go a lot more, um, and a lot like heavy, like a lot more amount not just a lot more often in a, a bigger amount. And we just today, we have just slowly recognized that it's, it's okay. It's, it's natural to not go, but once a week and it's not, we actually need to be going, you know, going every day. One thing I didn't mention as well is, me is magnesium deficiency. So mm -hmm. minerals are super important, but magnesium is one of those things that if it's deficient, you're going to be more anxious. You're going to be more constipated. Um, and you're going to have a harder time regulating your nervous system. And so if we can add magnesium for kids, a little bit of cod liver oil is something that I like to do or adding a little coconut oil to smoothies and that gets in some good fruits. We really can help a lot with adding the fats in, adding the magnesium back in and really getting things to move along. Okay. So I get asked this all the time. Parents will tell me, okay, I'm trying to figure out the root cause, work on it, but what can I do in the meantime? So those options you gave like magnesium, cod liver oil, can you give those to little kids? Because sometimes it's like babies that are constipated. Yeah. So for babies, I really like castor oil abdominal massage and it, you go in like a, a clockwise motion with just a, like a teaspoon or like a half teaspoon of, of castor oil and you massage the belly. And that is really calming, but it's also really helpful to encourage transit. But as well for, for babies, I go for chiropractor care, a castor oil abdominal massage, 
And then I will, an infant probiotic can be helpful. So those are some of the things. And then I look at food intolerances, like the conventional dairy and gluten. For one and up, that's when I can start introducing a couple other things. So there's this herbal tincture from BioRay that is a, it's called Pooper. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's good for one plus, And that's actually really helpful for kids. Um, that's a really great one to have on hand. I do like some kids digestive enzymes if needed. And then, like I said, adding the MCT oil or like just a little bit for kids, you start really slow. They are, you do really need to be mindful of that. But at the same time, they, there are a lot of things you can do. Don't be frozen that you can't do anything with a child because it's, you know, but it should sit on the bottle that it's okay. And a lot of things are okay at that age. Well, and some of these things you're talking about for babies and kids are great for adults as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's definitely herbal tinctures that are um, helpful for, um, for bowel movements. There are, there are probiotics. Probiotics aren't typically my first thing because sometimes the, the probiotic strain can actually be histamine producing and it just, and it causes more of an issue. So sometimes you can try it and see if it helps, but other times you might want to start with the herbal tincture, magnesium, castor oil packs, um, chiropractor movement. Um, you know, if we're sitting so much, then our bowels aren't necessarily going to get the urge to go. And so really getting up and moving a lot, it can be really helpful as well. And you'll notice that with children too. I noticed that with mine, I send them outside to jump on the trampoline and within 30 minutes, one of my children's running inside to go to the bathroom because we really need to be up and moving along. Right. Well, and for adults or older kids for magnesium, I always tell them magnesium oxide should take care of it, you know, pretty soon. So if you're looking for which type of magnesium, it's the magnesium oxide for the constipation. Would you ever recommend any pharmaceutical remedies or no? It depends. So like in acute use, there are some like um, uh, suppositories and enemas that I would say would be okay. I have a harder time, so maybe some senna, but generally you can do a good clean out with coconut oil, with um, the herbal drops, with castor oil packs that you don't necessarily need to do that. So I would say I would try to avoid that. Um, but if it's, if it's needed, I would much prefer that versus Miralax. Okay. Good to know. All right, let's move on to another topic. So I one time saw on your page, you talked about that most drugs prescribed to children have never been tested on children. So is this really true? Yeah, on the FDA website, I have a direct quote here from the FDA website. Most drugs prescribed for children have not been tested in children. Wow. Um, It's crazy. Um, The FDA did realize this issue and they started requiring post-market analysis for some of these drugs, but like only 30, like I think it's about a third percent, a third of the um, drugs have actually been doing this. Um, and so still we have less than half of the drugs that are given to children have actually been studied in children. Um, and so you see this with issues like Miralax or like Tamiflu, which have more issues in children. And again, that goes back to the neuropsychiatric effects. It has more issues in children because children, they tolerate things differently. There was an antibiotic given in the fifties that they just gave it to an infant because they thought it would be okay. And, And a lot of infants died because they didn't realize that their liver was not mature enough to process it. And so it's not just that, like, if they're not little adults, we kind of have to look at it like they are different beings and they're going to tolerate things differently. So why doesn't drug testing get done on children? It's hard. You know, you have to have a parent that's willing to sign your child up for a a study, Um, which I mean, as a parent, I don't know that I would be super willing to do that. 
Um, but you have to have a parent willing to uh, sign them up for a study. You have to have specialists um, that are child friendly and in an environment that's child friendly. And you have to have the funding and the money to do it. And a lot of these are done by a lot of the funding is from pharmaceutical companies. And if the if the doctors are already using it off label for children, they don't really have that big incentive to continue to do that, that those studies on children because they're already prescribing it. Um, because they've been prescribing things off label for many years for children. Oh, that is so interesting. That makes sense, though. I don't think I'd sign my well, I know I wouldn't. I wouldn't sign my kids up for a study. So no. let me ask you then this. If something is approved by the FDA, it doesn't necessarily mean it's been tested on kids and therefore we don't even know if it's safe, correct? No. I mean, there was a study in 2014 that found nearly a third of drugs had safety problems. Um, that were approved by the FDA, that were already approved by the FDA. And there are drugs, I think it's around a thousand drugs a year that are recalled. Now, some of that's due to contamination or different things. It's not just that there was a problem with the molecule, but like it's, it is an issue where just because it's on the market doesn't mean it's safe. I see that so often. Well, it wouldn't be sold on store shelves if it was, if it wasn't safe. No, that's not necessarily true. The FDA doesn't have the ability to do as much as you think. Not that we that they should, but just that they don't, they can't do as much as they think. And they don't have as much control and the ability to enforce these things as you would think. And so you really have to stand up and be that advocate for it yourself and your family in order to protect yourself from adverse drug effects. Yeah. People have asked me, so this doesn't have to do with medicine, but this has to do with beauty products. They'll say, does the FDA like approve your ingredients when you make your beauty products? And I'm like, the FDA doesn't have to do anything for my beauty products. I can really just put anything in there that I want. And so people have to start realizing like the beauty products on the market, they can be full of endocrine disruptors, um, formaldehyde releasers, all sorts of different chemicals that aren't great for the body. And the FDA doesn't even know that the companies are making those products. And so I think it's sort of similar with the drugs as well. Oh, it is. It is. I mean, it is. And they don't because they didn't even they don't even come to test to see what is on the label on your label. If that that's what it's in there, right? Because they, right. from what I understand, they don't do that. So the only time that they come test is if I apply for a certain certification, such as like the gluten free certification, then they are very strict and come do testing on that. But it's only if you apply for a certification. So you could just, if you didn't want those certifications, you could sell what you want. Oh yeah. And the same goes for supplements. I mean, the supplement industry is not regulated either. And that, that is an issue. So people will think that they're buying a certain supplement, but it's not that it's either, it doesn't contain what it says it contains, or it contains other things, or it contains things that it shouldn't necessarily be combined. And so yeah. it is something that like you really have to know your ingredients and at least look it up online before you're purchasing something like that, because it is, it is really hard to tell. Yeah, it is crazy. Okay, I want to go back to the Tamiflu. You just mentioned that really quickly. So why should this be avoided in children? And what are some of the side effects it causes? So Tamiflu, I mean, I've seen it given to babies, to infants and newborn moms that were just born to moms who are positive for the flu. It is given to every single age group. Um, they do have a new medicine called Zofluza that is a new um, antiviral for the flu, but it's very expensive and it's not it's not okay for for little ones. The issues with Tamiflu are that it, it can cause nausea and vomiting and a headache, which it sometimes it doesn't make you feel so good. But the bigger issue is that it can cause neuropsychiatric effects. 
And this is where like, it's actually scary. Some of the effects that these children have experienced, like all of a sudden the child was different after a dose of Tamiflu um, or a teenager with um, really depressive and bad and neck and bad thoughts after a dose of Tamiflu. I did a post on it and I had many, even adults say that made me feel crazy. It's amazing how we can find these things and we see it and we see it in people that would people's stories, but it's still on the market and it's definitely, you know, there's no safety concerns about it technically from a conventional medicine standpoint. Another issue with Tamiflu is it does cause QT prolongation, um, which is a heart rhythm. Um, and basically it can put you into a heart rhythm that can be kind of dangerous. And especially if you're combining with other medications, I have seen this as well in the, in the pediatric ICU where it did cause uh, a massive heart issue that the child was very, very ill. And so that's another thing we have to think about all these things that we're combining together um, and how that affects the body. But the biggest issue with Tamiflu with children is the neuropsychiatric effects. So interesting. Okay, so if someone does have the flu, let's say kids, teenagers, do you just let them write it out? Do you have natural remedies that you like better? Oh, of course. So I love bee propolis throat spray. I think it is so helpful and such, such an underutilized thing. Um, vitamin C is another big one. I love honey and turmeric. Um, Oxylococcinum is a homeopathic remedy that is actually very helpful for the flu. Um, and, and there's actually been several studies on it that can show um, the treatment for it. And in France, it's actually given, it's like the number one recommended flu medicine. But here it, it's sold on sore shelves, but it's not necessarily recommended by any conventional providers. Oh, and elderberry too. That's another one. Yeah, I love all of those. And just getting them out in the sunlight and yes. red light therapy. I mean, there's so yep. many different things you can do for them. Yes. Okay. Definitely. So I did see on your site, another medication that you talked about Paxil. So what is Paxil and what is it normally prescribed for? So it is an antidepressant, an SSRI antidepressant um, that is given for depression or anxiety. Um, it was given to adults and they started giving it to children. And they actually found there were multiple studies that found it actually increased suicide risk in children. But these doctors were still giving it off label because it, it like a, to a 16 year old, because they thought it wasn't much different than giving it to an adult. But anyone who is started on an SSRI, there is an increased risk for suicidal thoughts, especially in the short term right after starting it. And so that's the biggest issue with Paxil is that it really was different in children. Like it caused much more suicide, many more suicidal thoughts in children than it did for adults. And mm. so um, they did finally admit to that and they realized that that was, that was incorrect and that they shouldn't have necessarily given it. But other issues with antidepressants in general is that it can cause um, nutritional deficiencies and GI disturbances, especially if, they're, if it's given long-term. So just while we're talking about this, just so people know, some of these medications for depression, I just want to say this, that if you go off of them cold turkey, mm -hmm. they do have a huge side effect of suicidal thoughts and suicide. So if you are on any of these things and you want to get off of them, uh, just work with a practitioner to wean yourself off of them and not ever go cold turkey off of them. And I would say that about Miralax too. That's not something I would go cold turkey off of, but definitely with SSRIs, even for adults, it is incredibly hard to get a, a patient off of antidepressants. And so that should be something that's done slowly, correcting nutrient deficiencies. The vitamins is the big one, correcting nutrient deficiencies before you actually start that process and then slowly going down because otherwise you can really have some deleterious effects. 
Yeah, when I went through my health journey, I worked with a doctor to wean off of my antidepressants and we worked together for over 18 months. So it was a long process that I took to wean off of mine. So yeah, little plug But in I'm there. sure it was worth it because you probably did much better with that process than some of those that just cold turkey stop it and then they're miserable and it's just not, it's definitely not a good thing for your body. Yeah, it's just important for everyone to know the side effects of all medication that they're taking. Yes. Yes. Well, and just that also like there are some nutrient deficiencies. So what if while you're taking it, what if you do feel better? What if we can support the body and, and replenish some of those nutrients? So that way you are still able to function as you know, well, cause you need those B vitamins. It's not just for depression and anxiety. It's also for other things and neurological function. And so I do really think that if we just knew, Hey, Anytime you're, you're prescribed an antidepressant, if it actually works for you, great, but you really do need to supplement with a few of things just to really help the body. And B vitamins are huge because a lot of people that are dealing with depression and anxiety actually have really low B vitamin levels. Yeah. And so it's just something to make sure you check with your practitioner, your B vitamin levels, because I'm constantly shocked um, at the correlation. People will tell me often I see studies about this low B vitamin issue and depression. So Little and anxiety. Yeah. And anxiety. Both of them. I see B6, B12. Um, and there's some methylation issues. There's some stomach acid issues for not absorbing the B vitamins. There's lots of factors there. But if even in the short term, it's just supplementing with some B vitamins can be extremely helpful. Yeah, I agree. Okay. You actually have talked about the low stomach acid twice now. So let's maybe address this. How would someone know if they had low stomach acid? So oftentimes someone will have heartburn if they have low stomach acid. Heartburn, is, and that was one of my issues. I was always told you have it, it's because of too much stomach acid. But no, it's because of low stomach acid typically and the sphincter gets kind of floppy. You know, there are several factors that will decrease stomach acid production. Stress will decrease stomach acid production. Um, some chronic pathogens and chronic infections can definitely do that as well. Um, but sometimes it's due to nutrient depletion. So you need B vitamins for stomach acid production. You need salt. We've also been told not to add salt to things and salt is so important. Some good quality salt and zinc. I don't typically recommend to supplement with zinc um, just straight out unless you've been tested and all of that. But even doing like um, with oysters or with beef liver, things like that, that really have a lot of good B vitamins that can be very helpful and, and have B vitamins and zinc that can be very helpful for stomach acid production as well. Um, just slowing down. Um, you know, we eat on the go, we eat in the car, we, we eat while we're watching TV and it's not helpful for that stomach acid production. I really think if we all just slow down, we cook our meal, we smell the meal being cooked. Um, we really will be able to produce more stomach acid that will help our body to be able to digest it and will help with, um, with a lot of nutrient absorption among other things. Yeah. And I have a lot of listeners who will constantly tell me like, I hurt after I eat, I'm bloated after I eat, I'm in pain, cramping, all these different things. And I always say, have you ever had your stomach acid checked? Like, have you worked with a practitioner? Maybe that's an issue. And they always are amazed like, oh, I've never thought of that. So just a little tidbit for those listening. Maybe if you have those issues, there's lots of reasons why you could have bloating, cramping after you eat, but maybe one of the reasons is low stomach acid. 
And one of the things that is really easy is digested bitters. Um, you can, you can, um, apple cider vinegar is a digested bitter that you can put like a little, like a teaspoon to a tablespoon in an eight ounces of water, not straight, not an apple cider vinegar shot and actually have that before a meal. It helps with blood sugar after the meal, but it also helps with stomach acid production. But I love, there also are some tinctures like digested bitter tinctures that you can take before a meal that will help to stimulate those gastric juices. That way you really are um, helping and, and then you can figure out the root cause of why your stomach acid is not is depleted. I love those suggestions. Thank you so much. Okay, let's move on to one more topic. I know we're getting short on time, but I do want to ask you about one more thing that is controversial again on social media, and it's the sun. And there are a lot of health benefits from the sun. Why don't you just tell my listeners maybe some of those health benefits? So there is an increased incidence of with lack of sun exposure, increased incidence of breast cancer, colorectal cancer, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, metabolic syndrome, MS, Alzheimer's. So many things are related to the sun and not being exposed to it. And actually, we know we find that like you, you're told, well, don't get in the sun because of skin cancer, but actually melanoma is more common in indoor workers. It's mm. not necessarily, and it always comes up on spots of the body that are not um, exposed to sun, like the bottom of the foot or the thigh or the back um, and things that aren't typically exposed to the sun as much. The sun is needed for melatonin production. It's needed for your mood and your energy. There are so many benefits to the sun and just being outside that the fact that we have demonized it and made everyone put on sunscreen and sunglasses, it's not helping. Okay, I have to say something about this. So I go to the dermatologist like every six months to get checked because I always have precancerous spots on me. But they always find them on places that were never exposed to the sun. Like it's always on my bum or right under a breast or, you know, somewhere that hadn't seen the sun. And so a few years ago, that's when my eyes were open to this. Like, wait, why are these places, you know, where the sun hasn't been seen? This is so weird what is being taught versus what's happening. Okay, so let's talk about sunscreen then. Is there a time and a place for sunscreen? So I do think there is a time and place. Like if you're going to be at an amusement park or if you're going to be at the pool during the middle of the day and you've been there for a little while, uh, of course, I don't want anyone burning. Um, but I do talk about smart sun exposure. And so starting uh, sun exposure in the morning and in the evening, starting slowly, obviously fair skin people are going to need to start a little bit more slower. Um, and then trying to go out for a little bit in the midday to get that good vitamin D, because typically that is when you're going to get that good vitamin D exposure. And then, you know, if you're out, if we're outside and we've been outside and we're not taking a break and there's no way to put on, like, say you're at the pool and there's no way to put on more clothing, then sure, you can put on a little sunscreen. I do recommend non-nano zinc oxide, um, or there are some natural alternatives, like the coconut oil has some natural SPF. For children, you might want to do something a little bit more but I typically say like if, if you're getting pink and you're getting red, that might be a sign that your body's ready to be done and to take a break and maybe go sit in the, in the shade and have some water and have a snack and cover up for a little bit. I do like those rash guards though and like hats and stuff to keep you covered, but still able to be out in the sun. Yeah, I agree with that. So if my kids are swimming for hours, if we're at the lake boating all day long, yes, of course they have sunscreen on. If they're just going out in the backyard to play, no, they don't have sunscreen. And so a lot of parents will be like, you don't sunscreen your kids up every day. And I say, no, I want them out in the sun getting that vitamin D. It's so important because a lot of Americans are low on vitamin D, correct? Yes. Vitamin D is such a hard subject because there's so many like pros and cons to supplementation, but getting it straight from the sun 
there, there, you need that. You need the benefits of the sun al- along with the vitamin D that you get. Um, and so, yes, I do really recommend to be out in the sun for that reason. You need it for your bones. You need vitamin D for your bones and your teeth and your mood. It helps to regulate insulin. It's also really important for the immune system. We saw that last year or the past couple of years um, with everything going on. And it's super important for the immune system as well. Oh, I so agree. Okay. So you talked about sunscreen. What about sunglasses though? Should we be wearing them, not wearing them? Yeah. So sunglasses actually do block the uh, melanin um, production and they block the melatonin production. So if you are wearing sunglasses, you're not going to get the signal to your brain that your skin is turning pink and that you are going to burn. And so you'll burn more likely if you're wearing sunglasses the whole time. Um, but as well, you also need the melatonin production that you are, that is blocked with sunglasses. And so if you go outside and you're really sensitive to the sun, it's actually a, a sign of adrenal stress. But I do recommend that like you just slowly work up to it. There are some people that really have a hard time not wearing sunglasses. And if you slowly work up to it, it's helpful for melatonin and melanin production and to help you decrease your risk of burning. But sunglasses are like sunscreen in the fact that if you're going to be out on the boat, like on the lake all day long, you do want to wear the sunglasses. Yes. Yes. I mean, and especially because there are some people who will be more sensitive and will get a headache and you don't want that. Um, and so, of course, bring bring sunglasses or wear a hat. Um, that's another great way to kind of block some of that sunlight um, and give your give your eyes a rest um, while still getting the, the UV rays into the eyes. Okay, so now what do you believe about foods that can help your skin not burn as easily? Is that true? Yeah, yeah. isn't it crazy? Um, that Because it, it's something that you we are told that, um, that, that you can't do anything, you're just always going to burn, that if you're fair skin, you're always going to burn. But there is a lot of foods, the red foods that are really helpful, uh, foods that have vitamin K, vitamin E, astaxanthin is really helpful to help decrease your risk of burning as well. Um, and so those things are really helpful to decrease your risk of, of actually having a sunburn. Which to me, I just think nature is miraculous because if you think about it, there's like tomatoes in the summer that are full of the lysopene that can help with the sunburns, watermelon, which keeps you hydrated. Yeah. And I mean, yes. it's crazy. We have the fruits and vegetables that we need in the summertime to help us. Yeah, I love that. I love it. It's just it's similar to how like walnuts are really good for the brain, but they're in their shape like a they're shaped like a brain. Like I love how that was that's how it was created. And they're actually really good for us. It's so true. I have really loved having you on the podcast today. I have loved just talking about these different controversial topics out there and hearing the truth about them. Um, Are there any other little tips that you want to share before we wrap up? I would just say to always ask why never accept that like what you're being told is like the only option there usually are multiple options and to just dig deep just to know that there is healing possible that you can and have hope but just to keep going and to have hope and then to ask questions i love that yes ask why ask the questions and if your doctor or practitioner doesn't want to give you the answers or answer those questions that's a sign to go find a different one you know that's more willing to work with you And I did a story on this yesterday on Instagram. Go get a second opinion, a third opinion, fourth opinion. We went yesterday um, for a second opinion about getting tonsils removed. And her advice was 100% different than what the first dentist said. And so, and she gave some really cool alternative ideas that we could possibly do. And so go ask, go, like you said, I love that so much. 
So I always ask my guests before they leave what they have found to be the best ingredient in life. What would you say it is? I would say gratitude. Gratitude is something that can shift your perspective, can shift, can take you out of a darker place, can change your whole viewpoint on something. And if I can have a patient or or myself, if I can have my, like, start writing down three things I'm thankful for every day, how it shifts the perspective and how it shifts your foundation, it can change everything. I love gratitude. You're so right. It just helps your overall health. It can even help your organs. Like if you go study your different organs and their emotions, like gratitude can help them. I just think gratitude is so important. Thank you so much for being here today. I, like I said earlier, love following you on Instagram. Will you tell the listeners where they can find you? Yes, I am on Instagram at Natural Nurse Mama, and that's M O M M A two M's. And I have a my blog is at the same website www.naturalnursemama.com, um, and as well, I have a podcast that is linked in my bio. And you guys, you will not be disappointed if you go follow her. Like I said, you will learn so much. You just are a wealth of knowledge. I could have asked you a hundred more questions today. I might just have to have you on for part two. Oh, I would love that. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus, get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram. 